You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 11, in which we look at Matt's early days in college, and a mysterious new love interest enters the scene for the first time, and she makes a big impression on our young hero. Welcome back to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show dedicated to Marvel Comics' man without fear, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave, and I am the host of this little show. This week, we continue our year-long look at Daredevil through the lens of Frank Miller with the second issue of Daredevil, Man Without Fear, Miller's reimagining of the origin tale. Last week, we saw Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. expand Matt Murdock's early years. They added more to his childhood backstory. This week, however, Miller throws out the old and completely reimagines events that we saw in Daredevil number one, and the real retcons begin. As mentioned, art is once again provided by John Romita Jr. on pencils. In many ways, Romita Jr. was the main force behind making this miniseries happen. It was Ramita who reached out to Frank Miller to pitch him on working together on a Wolverine project. This would have been around 1987 or so, and Miller wasn't too keen on working on the character Wolverine. Wolverine was everywhere. But he did want to work with Ramita, so he sent him a package. In that package was essentially what became Man Without Fear. It was a story that began as a treatment for a failed TV movie that never happened. Apparently, the powers that be decided that Trial of the Incredible Hulk was the way to go. Great thinking, seeing as Thor really hit it off in his own spin-off series. But this treatment was what Miller sent to Ramita in 1987. The subsequent working draft, as reprinted in the Man Without Fear trade paperback, is dated June of 1988. So this fills in a gap of knowledge a bit, as far as why Miller returned to Daredevil after so long. Because this puts the writing of the original treatment almost immediately or parallel to his return to the character in Born Again. So it has its roots in the same time frame as he was actually working on the comic, working with the character. And this makes a lot more sense now. It kind of puts it in the crosshairs a little bit more. Last week, I talked a bit about Frank Miller, who landed on the scene by needling Neil Adams relentlessly with his art. Despite Neil Adams telling Miller that his art sucked and he should go back home to Vermont, Miller persisted until Adams just relented, saying that, yeah, he can't draw, but his storytelling is excellent. Conversely, John Romita Jr. got his start as a child, making his drawings, but not showing them to his famous artist father, John Romita Sr. Jr. had set out to become an artist on his own merits, finding that his name worked against him as he was constantly compared to his father. Despite these efforts, Junior got his foot in the door through Marvel UK, with some help from his dad. Junior proved his own chops, though, and made his penciling debut with a backup story in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 11. He made some waves while working on Iron Man with Bob Layton and David Michelini, 
and then a well-regarded run on Uncanny X-Men, which also put his foot in the door to work on the Dazzler solo title. Ramita is also returning to Daredevil after a very solid run on the title, along with writer Anne Nascenti in Daredevil issues 250 to 282. In interviews, Ramita still regards Man Without Fear, as in the miniseries we are currently looking at, as his finest work for the quality of art and quality of story, and I have to agree. His art is a perfect balancing point between the sleeker house style and the scritchy scratchy style that he uses today. I'll also agree because of the evolution of the series. Think about this. It started out as a pitch for a treatment. It became a 47 page graphic novel and then ballooned up to five oversized issues at 32 pages a piece. That is a huge leap to 160 pages and a new format, which kind of explains the abrupt endings, but doesn't necessarily excuse them. I don't put the abrupt endings on Ramita. Let me be clear about that. That falls on production, editorial, quality control, all of those. It goes through many, many channels before it becomes a book in our hands. And what I'm saying is each issue cost a whopping $2.95 at a time when Daredevil, the ongoing comic, was going for $1.25 an issue. What I'm saying is that is a hefty investment on each issue. So I think fans deserved a more consistent cliffhanger and a more complete single issue, which could have been done even in the production process. However, since I'm reading this from the trade and digital, in the end, as a whole, the series needs to be looked at as such, and it takes some neat turns. There are a lot of things crammed into each and every one that do almost justify the price that would have been on the individual issues. Which brings us to this week, as we look at the aftermath of Jack Murdoch's death and how that causes the quiet and restrained Matt Murdoch to seek a path to Daredevil. So after this podcast promo break, we dive into Daredevil Man Without Fear, Issue 2. So I'll be right back after this message. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Yeah. 
And we are back, ready to pick up where we left off last week. You know, I took a look at some of the other comics that were on the racks at the time that this issue was coming out, and I kind of had this weird bit of nostalgia. Unfortunately, not the warm kind. You know, memories of a family vacation, memories of your first kiss, not that kind. No, these were memories of a sadder, I was there type. For example, there was an X-Men and Avengers crossover, which was kind of a forgettable storyline. I say that because I had completely forgotten about it. The weird thing is I was reading it. I was there and I liked the Leather Jacket Avengers. I know that run gets a lot of flack, but I was really enjoying the book a lot, yet forgot about this crossover completely. As for the Leather Jacket Avengers, because how often does that come up in conversation? The lineup was cool. It was filled with characters who could be exclusive to the book without weighing it down with the baggage of their own ongoing antics. The Black Knight was cool. Crystal was a great choice to put against Cersei. But you had some old guard in the mix. It was a good time. And I thought the leather jacket look was a good choice because it gave us a working class set of Avengers that kind of had a job to do rather than the high and mighty hero royalty. And I was reading X-Men at the time. And this was during the lackluster post-image exodus where Scott Lobdell was just trying to find a direction in the aftermath of that tailspin. And then there was the post-Peter David X-Factor, which was the thread that began to pull my comic collecting apart. Because it had definitely lost its way after Peter David left. That book had gone from top of the pile to its own pile labeled, I'll get to that sometime. So all of this to say that at the time that this book was coming out, The Incredible Hulk was the only book that was sustaining the experience of buying monthly comics, which is why I would kind of leave comics a little while down the road. So where was I with Daredevil when this came out? Well, my comic shop regularly, consistently under-ordered Daredevil, meaning that generally the only people who got the book were the subscribers, and maybe a few lucky people here and there who were able to snag it with any regularity. That malaise is why I didn't read this miniseries when it came out. That and the $2.95 price tag, which I mentioned, that was the rough equivalent to almost three regular comics. I wasn't going to shell out a big chunk of my allowance for a comic that may not live up to the price. And here's the weird thing. I don't think that I would have liked this comic at that time. Mainly because Daredevil himself wasn't in it. It was not what I would have... It wouldn't have fit my aesthetic at the time. Which was more in line with the 90s comics. In fact, when I first read this in my early 20s, I was lukewarm. And different times, different tastes. And looking at it differently from a critical point of view rather than just a sit-down, read-it for my own entertainment and edification. Either way, the approach is a little bit different. I'm finding a lot more to talk about this time. So, it is time to open up Daredevil Man Without Fear number 2, which picks up directly after the tragic death of Jack Murdock last issue. Once again, I feel compelled to mention that this issue was published during the Fall from Grace storyline, which had Daredevil donning a new black costume with red highlights and armored plates. Conversely, beyond the cover, Matt never dons the costume in this, or any issue of this series save the last one. Not in any real way, I guess I should say. That means that despite an ongoing series and a concurrently running miniseries, Daredevil was not appearing in the traditional red costume at all during this time. That is, except for the cover to this issue. And the cover, once again, sticks to the theme of a black bar on the side and a ghostly image of Daredevil, normally in red foil, this time looming in the background, snow falling in front of him, looking fairly stoic. In the foreground, the red-clad Electra leaps off of a nearby cliff, smiling knowingly at the reader. I really like this cover. 
mainly because of the snow, which Ramita doles out in balance, and colorist Christy Scheel makes it pop. The secret to this cover is apparent immediately. The black background was eschewed in favor of a grayish-blue background, which makes the Daredevil image beyond the snow practically glow. And the use of red on Daredevil combined with the snow effect gives just the right bleed to the figure of Elektra to make the image cohesive, but the two don't bleed into each other. Speaking of Elektra, she looks fine. Nothing monumental about her depiction, but she is positioned on the left side of Daredevil's chest, right about where his heart would be. I don't know if that was intentional, but it succeeds in a nice bit of symbolism either way. But what about what's inside the book? Let's take a look at Daredevil the Man Without Fear number 2, which was cover dated November 1993. The story is entitled The Man Without Fear Chapter 2, which was of course written by Frank Miller, penciled by John Romita Jr. The rest of the production team is rounded out by Al Williamson on inks, Joseph Rosen on letters, Christy Scheel on colors. If you're wanting to read along, this is in the Man Without Fear trade paperback and hardcover as well. There's a Marvel Visionaries John Romita Jr. hardcover that reprints this, and of course Marvel Digital Unlimited. Matt goes to the hospital morgue to identify Jack's body and feels a cold emotion running through his gut and throughout his body. He thinks that he spied on his father. He knows the names of those responsible for Jack's death. Later, two of the Fixer's men, Mikhail and Gillian, are walking New York streets sipping on some booze when they are coaxed into a dark alley by the tapping of Matt's cane and the sound of his taunts. When the police find them beaten relentlessly, the two confess to killing Jack believing that the boxer has returned from the dead. Okay, the opening immediately gave me a fairly focused train of thought on the storytelling. Perhaps I haven't said it on this show, but I have said before that making a comic is like dealing in real estate. You have X amount of space to tell Y amount of story. That is true for other forms of storytelling, to be fair, but more precise in the comic book medium. For example, television dramas, they have a certain length of time to fit into a slot and that has a requisite number of commercials they have a length to hit but that can be fixed with a bit of editing if need be if a scene runs longer than expected the scissors are applied and it can be condensed a few shots a few reactions removed magic i will say that comics are a bit trickier as the page count and the size of the page remain fairly static as do the images you have a book that will be 32 pages long you have Y amount of story to fold into that. Both the artist and writer have input, especially in this book where the Marvel method is used. So it comes down to a simple set of questions. What will be said? What will be shown? I say all of that to properly set up this. This issue is a bit stilted on what it shows and also what it does not show. For example, the opening scene, to bring it back, Matt goes to the morgue. In two panels, in the morgue, we see him identify Jack's body, which involves Matt touching the familiar face of Jack Murdock. However, we are simply told that Matt can touch the body, not shown it, and I wonder if that is a missed opportunity. Because this is a big moment. This forms the undercurrent of what immediately follows in this issue. This issue as a whole, or this segment of the issue as a whole, is fueled by the emotion of this moment and that one image kept popping into my head yet it wasn't on the page because I pictured Matt's hand gracefully touching the brow of what was Jack Murdoch which is shown in silhouette in my head 
Instead, the scene is truncated to two panels, and that mutes the emotion and the range a bit. That is offset, admittedly, with the voraciousness of what Matt does next, which also keeps my core thought process in mind. How much is shown, how much is said. As Matt coaxes Mikhail and Gillian into an alley to deliver a severe beating, we don't see him at all. The two men step into the dark alley, which of course gives Matt an advantage, since light and dark mean nothing to him, and then the next time we see these two, they're in heaps on the ground. To further illustrate what I am referring to, Jaws is regarded as Steven Spielberg's best film. It is a classic, mainly because of the sense of suspense that is built in that movie. And that is owed mostly to the limited amount of screen time that the shark itself receives. Now, we all know that wasn't Spielberg's intent. The robot shark wouldn't cooperate, but the end result was great. Here we don't see Matt, which makes the scene work. Not only is the beating worse in our imaginations, we also have no tangible eyewitness proof that Matt broke his own stringent rules. Frank Miller is using another sneaky lawyer's trick because we, the reader, know that it is mad, yet we would not be able to prove that in court. It's very well done, actually. And with that scene, makes me go back to the scene in the morgue. Did we evoke enough emotion in those two panels to make this stand out? For me, not quite. I would have liked to have seen the emotion of this, however, there is a lot of pacing that needs to be addressed. But like the bow and arrow scene in the last issue, I think there are, there are places that could have been reduced to allow this moment to shine. However, that may have been the intent to mute that so we get on with Matt's story. But the end result is the rage jumps off the page without a single visual to match it. But it's an in-control Matt that slips between the cracks of his own rules. And I know I'm not addressing the elephant in the room. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Let's look at what happens next. At the boxing gym, Slade works a medicine bag with his fists as his cohort, Marcello, watches. The lights go dark at the gym, and when Slade moves around in the darkness, he finds Marcello beaten bloody on the floor. Slade turns to see Matt standing in the ring wearing a ski mask and holding a baseball bat. Matt drops the bat and taunts the large man into the ring, where he proceeds to lay the mother of all beatdowns on Slade, relentlessly raining blow after blow on him. And in what has to be the worst timing ever, the Fixer himself arrives at the gym just as Matt has turned Slade into a limp pile of man in the ring. Seeing this, the Fixer gets the hell out of Dodge, jumps into his limo, where Matt pursues the fleeing Fixer across rooftops until he is able to leap on the roof of the car. The limo wrecks when Matt puts the baseball bat through the windshield and the Fixer escapes into a subway station. Matt follows and comes face to face with a cornered, and panicked Fixer, who has a heart attack from the stress and falls dead. And with the orchestrator of his father's death laying in a lifeless heap, Matt thinks that there's only one left, the limo driver, Angelo. Now again, my focus remains on what is shown and what is said. For example, little Marcello is said to have laughed as he carved up Jack's face. Yet when the lights go out, we only see the results of the thrashing that he took at Matt's hands. However, when it comes to Slade's time, things change a bit. While the others beat Jack, the others hurt him, Slade is the one who actually delivered the killing gunshot. This is sharp, this is personal, and it needs to be done face to face. We, the reader, need to see this. Matt can't hide in the dark or behind his fine print or else the moment is lost. It isn't justice being served, it's pure revenge because his father's killer 
needs to know who he is answering to. Instead of the dark, Matt dons a ski mask. He still hides his face and hides behind a persona, but we get a nice visual hint because the red jacket is a nice nod to Matt's future incarnation of this personality. However, in this instance, it should be justice that is served rather than revenge. Of course, why can't it be both, right? Matt's writing a razor-thin line within his own set of rules, but he never blatantly or intentionally steps over those rules. He uses intimidation tactics and mind games, which is a big difference between the quiet, bookish Matt and his new persona, a persona that Matt describes as a cold thing growing in his belly. And if Matt wanted simple revenge, he could have shot some arrows into Slade and Marcello from the darkness. Matt wants Slade, above others, to face a foe, to rely on his strength, and then to lose. He wants Slade humiliated and emasculated. Because death would serve as a fitting revenge, but this, and while it is revenge to an extent, is up close and personal, and Slade must live with this moment. And so must the reader. While the violence in this issue has been off-panel so far, Slade's comeuppance is shown in a moderately graphic detail, including the opening salvo of Matt delivering a kick to Slade's kneecaps, bending the leg backwards. Ah! It's a disturbing page, and it's nearly a full-page splash. The filter suddenly comes off, and it's a hard hit, and one that could turn a casual reader off of this issue. And of course, Matt puts a roll of pennies in his palm and punches Slade relentlessly over and over. It is personal, it is in your face, and as mentioned, it needs to be shown, otherwise it loses its relevance to the story. Slade was the one who pulled the trigger and ended Jack's life. He is the true murderer of Jack, so the punishment must fit the crime. But the line between revenge and justice is in the details because Matt doesn't kill Slade or the others. Instead, he plays a clever mind game giving them the impression that Jack Murdoch himself is exacting his revenge, and this leads to some interesting results. Matt is basically playing the CSI or Law & Order home game, where a criminal with a fairly tight alibi and a chance to beat the rap admits not only to killing somebody, but then to the motive and the method they spill their guts. Matt has basically Jedi mind tricked them. Instead of outright killing them, or even just the beatings, Matt crafts a case, and I want that word to be emphasized, a case, to push these lowlifes into turning themselves over to the law and confessing their crimes. After all, it has to be Jack, right? Who else would know what happened? Certainly not Jack's blind bookworm son, that would be ridiculous. Matt is at a proto-stage in a version of himself where the lines between lawyer and vigilante aren't fully formed. This is a proto-daredevil that uses both in tandem in a rougher method than what we are probably used to. Neither side of Matt's uh, different personalities are as expertly honed as they will be. As the Daredevil portions are coming in and out, Matt's own pent-up rage from years of being bullied is released. Matt will refine, define, and separate these two halves as he grows older and slides into those dual roles. For now, he's a kid with a lot of anger and a perfect set of targets to release it at. This is a fascinating scene and something I went over and over again. And then we move to the chase of the Fixer. Remember the, the elephant in the room? This is familiar territory, as in Daredevil number one, and even with the same result, Fixer drops dead of a heart attack. However, things are massively different, aren't they? In Daredevil number one, Matt was already out of college. He had already adopted his Daredevil persona and the costume when he met up with Slade and the Fixer. With issue one, Miller kind of played with the mortar between the bricks of the original story. This time, he basically removes bricks from the wall and places different bricks. Still the same wall, 
it looks noticeably different. This is a major retcon, at least at a certain level. Here are the core questions that we have to address with retcons. Does it matter? Does it improve? Here it doesn't matter overall. The details and the backdrop have changed from the original, but Jack is still killed by the Fixer's men. Matt still goes after them, and we end up at nearly the same destination regardless, maybe a little bit earlier. It does improve, though, I would argue, as it provides the proto-Daredevil and a depiction of a Matt where the lines of who we know, both sides of him, are blurring and beginning to form. It's a good addition for a character study, and it feels right to see it this way. Because I feel that I understand Matt more. I feel that I relate to him and how he and Daredevil are the same person with certain personal walls to divide what he does and who he is when he does it. But I will say we are off the reservation a bit at this point in the story. We're hitting a splice point where we're going to take a different path. And Matt seems to be holding his own. He seems to be looking competent, but something is about to happen that will change not only him, but how the rest of this miniseries plays out. Let's take a look. Matt catches up with Angelo at a high-rise brothel, but things go badly when Matt dives into action as the prostitutes rush him. With too much perfume and adversaries, Matt panics a bit and accidentally sends one of the women out the window where she hits the ground below. Devastated, Matt flees the scene and goes back to the safety of the boxing gym looking for guidance from Stick, but he finds the place empty. Stick, meanwhile, informs a shadowy figure named Stone that Matt will not suit their needs because of his failure this night and says that Matt is useless to them. Now, Matt has a big, big fail here, to say the least, and one that will haunt him through the rest of this miniseries. The girl being knocked out the window is a bit of a crack in Matt's armor, to say the least. It breaks the rules. Both the strict legal rules that Matt lives by and the goal of what his vigilante justice was setting out to achieve. It will haunt him throughout this story, and it instills in Matt the need for greater control over his environment and his strategy. In short, it's another tragic building block to Daredevil and the methods that Daredevil will employ. It also informs Matt of where his limits are. What is his Achilles heel? It was the surprise of the prostitutes attacking him and how overwhelming the multitude of them were. Up to this point, the fights have been on Matt's terms, using darkness, one-on-one -on -one with the target. Now, Matt was forced to go to a stage set by another and one with unpredictable elements in it. That is a mistake that Matt knows he can't repeat, and the consequences of what he is doing is clear. It's a tough lesson to learn, but one that is absolutely necessary. And for those screaming at your MP3 player, yes, the girl who was knocked out of the window lives, and goes on to be the villain slash love interest Typhoid Mary. But I don't want to touch on that too much, as we will be getting to her down the road, and I want to save that conversation for later. Also a conversation to earmark is the conversation between Stick and Stone, because we will be coming back to that and why that conversation happens and why it is extremely important to the tail end of Miller's run. Now, that is one of the drawbacks to the order of the stories, um, things that I don't want to comment on, even though they're there, like the bow and arrow scene last week and why that's important. I know I looked over it. I didn't mention it. There's a reason for that. It's easier to call back to this later than to mention this for down the road. Because with this, with choosing this order, seeds are being planted for stories that have already happened. So it can get frustrating. So forgive me if I didn't mention it. I did not miss it. Time travel sucks, that's all. Now after this, we jump ahead in the story to a year later, and Matt is in college at Columbia University where he has befriended Foggy Nelson. However, Foggy is being horribly bullied by a douchebag named Brad, so Matt teaches Brad a very special message by leaving him tied up naked on a snowy tennis court. 
Brad's tune changes, but Matt remains distant to everyone, even those of the opposite sex. And at night, while Foggy snores, a sleepless Matt will occasionally take to the rooftops to find some peace and quiet. But on his high-rise jaunt, Matt realizes that there is somebody bounding around on rooftops like him in the snowy night, and she has a female scent. Matt follows the mystery woman across the rooftops and alleyways into Central Park, where his target has left a trail of various pieces of her clothing right down to the underwear. There's suddenly a woman's call for help, which takes Matt deeper into the park, where he finds nothing, but the police do find Matt. Matt's luckily able to get out of the jam pretty easily, being blind. But the next day at school, Matt and Foggy are surprised when a girl with dark hair and the same scent Matt caught last night rolls up in a convertible Corvette. Remember, this is winter, it's snowing. So she has the top down, and Matt leaps into the car without so much as a word. The girl takes Matt on a speedy drive on a snowy streets with the top still down. It is a crazy, scary drive. Dodging traffic, weaving in and out, and then she takes the car off-road and comes to a stop near a precipice. She gets out of the car and tells Matt that this is where she belongs, near the edge and beyond it. And then she leaps off the cliff, which leads us to a nearly literal cliffhanger of an ending to our second issue. We jump into Matt's college years and leave behind the sad scene of Hell's Kitchen, which may be a great choice or a terrible one. After all, should we have spent a bit more time with young Matt figuring out what it all means? Or is it better to let that story sit for a while and play out in the background? Not sure on that one, actually. We meet Foggy, which is excellent. We kind of see how their bromance was born. More importantly, why? Matt sees the brilliance in Foggy, but he also sees the kid being bullied, and that is something Matt has more than a little experience with. Which is why Matt takes it unto himself to teach Brad a lesson. Again, what is seen and what is said. Let me come back to that. We know that Matt put the fear into Brad, but we don't see how. However, the devil is in the details, and I use that pun intentionally. Looking at the three panels of naked Brad in the snow, I want to note that there is no blood, no bruises. Matt did not use his fists, but he used his noggin again, another proto-daredevil moment, and it shows an evolution in his tactics. Matt could have easily beaten Brad senseless, but that would have only served to strengthen the bully's resolve. Instead, the captions tell us that Matt yanked Brad out of bed, across rooftops, and basically describe the kind of violence that was bestowed on the Fixer's men. So Brad knows the consequences, and he knows that he needs to change thanks to a well-reasoned argument. A mix of Daredevil and Matt again, a legal approach in argument, a physical approach in vigilante tactics. Still, Matt's restless. There is a part of him, and the part that is pure Daredevil, that can't stand the mundane. Let me note here that in the original outline that Miller turned in, the story moves on. In fact, Brad's apology wasn't in the original outline, Neither was the remainder of this issue. This issue contains about 45% of Miller's addendums to the story in a 1990 document, with issue 3 containing about 50%. This section that we are entering was the added chunk that changed the format. With what is added here, Marvel realized that they could not publish a graphic novel of this length. Now, now, at this time, it wouldn't even break a sweat for the publisher. They would wrap it in a hardcover, jack up the cover price, ship it to your local Barnes & Noble. But at this time, it was just a bridge too far. Some smaller additions were the conversation that Stick has with Stone about Matt's failure and enhancing the bullying of Foggy a bit. But the main focus of this act of the story was gone. One character wasn't even mentioned, but Ramita Jr. added a transitional piece that makes it all worthwhile. That piece is where Matt takes to the rooftops, and that is where he gets into trouble. It's also where the art on this issue goes up to 11. One of, actually no, the best shot of the issue, maybe of the series, is the full-page splash of Matt leaping in the air, silhouetted by the moon. Oh, it looks excellent. It sells it for me. And then the snow starts to fall, and I'm all in. Let me share a little story with you. Many, 
many years ago, during my freshman year in high school. I skipped lunch every day for a week to use my lunch money to augment my allowance. The reason? So I could buy the first series of the Marvel Masterpieces trading card set. Now these were high gloss, fully painted depictions of the Marvel heroes by Joe Jusco. When I got these cards, I looked through them, I stared and stared at the Daredevil card. And it's a card that I recently bought again, which was signed by Jusco. The card is a simple image of Daredevil standing on a rooftop with snow falling around him. I loved that card so much because I got Daredevil. I understood him in a way that I hadn't before. His world is the rooftops. It's a world amongst ours, but just out of reach. And on nights when it snowed, he was the king. Now think about it. Think about a snowy night. Unfortunately, the weather recently doesn't make it too hard. But think about the quiet of it. How the world seems to shut up for a while. Now, imagine you have the enhanced senses of Daredevil where the smaller, insignificant noises are muted out. And only the sound of his own heartbeat rings out, his own breath, especially from a height of a rooftop. On these rare occasions, Daredevil has some peace and quiet and can look inward, high above the streets. I realized that these moments of peace are rare for him, and that is why he is always going, always pushing, always moving, just trying to keep up with the chaos that is around him and the chaos in his own head. That image, that mindset, is what I brought to the table, and it's what's in effect as he pursues, and you know what, I'm not going to mince words here, I'm going to call it who it is because it doesn't serve us to not say it, that's why he pursues Electra. Of course, this is how the two meet. It certainly wouldn't be at a coffee shop. It has to be in a realm beyond the mundane, the rooftops, Daredevil's kingdom. And with the snow, Daredevil is able to hone in on his target, yet the snowfall stops as they get to the street. Let me note that that is where Matt makes his mistake and misjudges a leap over a taxi cab, landing on the ground with a thud. One kind of has to wonder if that was a sign, just how much this girl is going to mess with him in the immediate and far future. After all, she's testing him now, she's leaving a trail of clothes and baiting him into a well-conceived trap. For the first time, though, Daredevil has met a contemporary, someone who can not only keep pace, but throw his pace into high gear and into new unexpected directions. In fact, she puts him into conflict with the police, and what is it that stops Matt from running or fighting the cops? The rules. And he remembers the last time he lost control and the girl that fell from the window. Let's be honest, Matt was in no way, shape, or form prepared for Electra and her particular brand of chaos. She is a random element to Matt's controlled environment, which is why he makes mistakes like misjudging a jump. And the ending of the issue proves just how in over his head Matt is with Electra taking a huge leap and completely blowing Matt's mind. This is where Matt and his rules will find their first challenge of sorts, in the passion of emotion, and it calls back to the prostitutes rushing him. Either fear from being overcome, or the passion of love or lust, if you want to be honest, it's a retcon, but it works to explain things like his distance with Karen Page, or why he has to split the world into Matt and Daredevil. Not only is Daredevil a bit of legal fine print, it is also a way to cap off his natural emotions and keep control. We are shown this in the botched leap rather than being told as the action unfolds that Matt is following his emotions, not his discipline. The character work that's being done here is astounding and it's very fertile ground, I can see why the project ballooned to its final length and why this was added. Overall, this was a very gratifying issue, except for the abrupt ending, and I still wonder if the story would have been served better by a more emotional moment with Jack Murdock and seeing how Matt stuffs that emotion down. 
However, I will say that the inference of that is evident enough to draw it from what we are given, so I will remain a hung jury. However, the introduction of Electra really changes the tone of the book, and the reader is drawn into the story immediately. It makes perfect sense why she was added. Miller's mindset, and rightfully so, was that Electra was a big part of his run, a big part of Daredevil. So it made sense that since this was taking place during that time, we take a look at that relationship. And Ramita Jr. just nails Electra by making her stacked rather than waif thin. He goes more for the badass than the sexy and ends up sacrificing neither, actually. Electra looks exotic and otherworldly as well as competent and a little crazy, all things that would invite the thrill-loving Matt. Plus, Matt's handling of the bully, Brad, comes off as swashbuckling, giving fair due to the many aspects of the character. In the end, it was a well-done issue that leaves me ready for more and wanting to see the evolution of this conflicted young man into Daredevil. However, that will have to wait for one more week, as right now it is time to move over and read your emails. Well, that could be error with the post. All right, we have one email this week, and luckily it is from the irredeemable Shag, with the subject line, The Podcast Without Fear. Shag writes, Hi Dave, I hope you don't mind if I call you Dave. I said you could. Uh, my first official email to your Daredevil podcast. Hooray! Daredevil is my favorite Marvel character, so finding your show was a real treat. I've been a fan of DD for nearly 25 years, and for me, it's been a very solitary fandom. In real life, I know lots of diehard Spider-Man fans, diehard Punisher fans, and diehard Superman fans, but no other diehard Daredevil fans. Listening to your podcast provides a sense of community for the man without fear that I've been lacking for the past quarter century. So far, your show has covered material I've never read. It's been loads of fun to learn about these early adventures of Old Hornhead. While I've read over 350 issues of Daredevil, my collection really begins with the Frank Miller era, with just a handful of earlier exceptions. Most anything prior to 158 is new to me. The format you've chosen for the show is brilliant. By skipping around various issues, it allows you to pass over the duds. And let's face it, while Daredevil has had numerous excellent runs, he's been mired with several mediocre runs too. I enjoy your tight, humorous recaps and insightful commentary. Your breakdown of Bullseye and why he's an ideal villain for Daredevil was expertly crafted. Seriously. That coverage thrilled me as a Daredevil fan and shamed me as a fellow podcaster. You've set the bar pretty high for the rest of us, my friend. Well done. If you don't mind, I'll take this opportunity to share my own DD origin story. The very first Daredevil comic I bought was issue 223 in the summer of 1985, a Secret Wars 2 tie-in. I distinctly remember because I was reading the comic at home when my mother informed me that a reverend from a local church was planning to stop by that afternoon. My 12-year-old self panicked. I had a comic with a horned devil as the main character. A devil comic? If the Reverend saw this comic, it was without a doubt a one-way trip to H.E. Double Hockey Sticks, or at the very least a verbal beatdown from my parents. I hid the comic in my room at the bottom of a pile of consisting of every object on the second floor that wasn't nailed down. I couldn't relax at all during the Reverend's visit. I thought surely the cross around his neck was scalding hot from the presence of that Satan-promoting comic one flight above. Couldn't his X-ray Gatovision see through the ceiling right to this four-color abomination? Not that I truly believe the comic supported Satanism, but I was positive no one would look beyond the title and red horned suit. Agonizing hours later, the Reverend left. He was kind enough not to mention the contraband comic he must have sensed within our den of sin. Whew. I, somehow I had dodged that exorcism. It was four years later when I bought my next Daredevil comic. It was Daredevil number 268 with a stunning John Romita Jr. cover featuring a shadowy hornhead holding a hangman's noose. I was entranced by the cover, and the inside sealed the deal. I was a Daredevil fan from that moment on. Next, I picked up the Born Again trade paperback, one of the first trades I ever owned, 
and quickly began amassing back issues. Yes, I cut my teeth or horns in this case on Frank Miller's Magnus Opus and Anne Nocenti's Dark Road Trip. Luckily, I survived the experience. I'm excited to hear your upcoming episodes on Frank Miller's run. After this year-long series, might I suggest you give some thought to these other Daredevil stories. The Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord run. Daredevil 304 by D.G. Chinchester and Ron Garney, and its somewhat sequel 316. Daredevil Yellow by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Mark Wade's run with various artists. Daredevil Dark Knights number 1 through 3 by Lee Weeks. The Ann Nacinti and John Romita Jr. run. The Kevin Smith and Joe Quisada run. The Daredevil feature film, either the theatrical version or the director's cut. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on some of the more maligned eras, such as the motocross Daredevil. Thanks again for the exceptional podcast. Looking forward to celebrating DD's 50th with your show. Signed, The Irredeemable Shag. Luckily, Shag makes it easy to promote his work. Uh, he is the webmaster at FirestormFan.com, which is a Firestorm-centric website. He is also the co-host on the Fire & Water podcast, which is the official podcast of FirestormFan.com and AquamanShrine.net. He also, under that banner, hosts Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. And he also hates Hillbilly Marvel. And, you know, if you speak his name on an episode, he pops in with an email on the next. That seems to be the ebb and flow. At least he makes pimping look easy. And Shag, though, I'll be serious. You humble me, kind sir. You really honestly do. For somebody who hosts a show of the caliber of Fire and Water podcast, and who is the semi-regular co-host of Views from the Longbox, and is able to put Michael Bailey in check, for you to say such kind things about the Bullseye episode hit me in the feels. And then I hit myself for saying the feels. But I'll be honest with you, I had problems with your with your email. Every time I went to record this, your origin story kept cracking me up because I am picturing a very clearly a very little shag with the current shag's head on a tiny body, oddly. Sweat's just pouring off of you in buckets. I picture the stack of stuff looking like something out of Looney Tunes with like an Acme crate at the top. I could not, st- I had a lot of trouble getting through the email. But... It, what you what that, that origin story does speak to kind of an idea that I was pondering a little bit last week off the cuff about the costume and the devil imagery, maybe putting off parents from buying the book for their kids, which wasn't the plan, but darn it, it worked. You also mentioned, though, that fandom does seem to be solitary. Keyword seems. I will say it does feel like that sometimes, but there are sites like manwithoutfear.com and the other Murdoch papers, which do help unite other fans. But still, I see what you're saying. It does seem that Hornhead does not get the same attention that other characters like Spider-Man or, and I hate to admit this, even Superman gets. Bear in mind, I was a charter member of the Superman Podcast Network, so it's hard for me to admit that. But if this show helps build community and spur Daredevil discussion, you know, I've hit a mark much higher than I was aiming for. My goal was, is, will always be just to enjoy these comics, talk about that enjoyment, and study them a little bit. I will say taking that tact has been very good because with Superman, I took sort of an apologist role. I decided to defend the character, and I think it took some of the wind out of my sails. With Daredevil, it's all about accepting his role where he is as a a second stringer and simply having fun. That doesn't mean I'm not bitter about the second string level of Daredevil. It doesn't mean that I don't feel a little bit of, of anger at that, but... I would rather be a fan and enjoy it and just share my fandom and see if that spreads. If that's doing that, fantastic. Speaking of, as to some of the suggestions you had on on coverage, the Kiesel and and Nord run, that was locked in. That's been locked in from day one. I just didn't know when. It will probably be a very short bit after the Frank Miller stuff. I don't want to jump from one run to another. I want to have a little bit of randomness in there. Um, I'm actually going to dig 304 and 316 out of the box and take a look. I don't remember those issues. And oddly, I found that I have little to say on Daredevil Yellow, 
that Andy and Michael over at Hey Kids Comics haven't already said. And then again, you know, the yellow costume is there. Some of us have a yellow costume Daredevil t-shirt. I'm not going to say who, Shag. But to be fair, I'll be honest with you, that work was really good. And Tim Sale makes the yellow costume work. Now, Dark Knights 1 through 3 is on my list down the line. I read that recently. And once I got past the fact that that three-issue run kind of harkens back to a Flash story, I really dug it. And Anacinti and John Jr., I have a feeling that that stuff will be in swatches rather than the whole thing all at once because of the length of it. Smith and Kazada, the Guardian Devil, that's on a must-cover list. Again, that will be down the road. And Wade's run as well will be on the list too. And I do plan to address the films, both versions, perhaps towards the end of 2014. I have not locked those in yet. But I need to get a rant out of the way about that because I'm really sick and tired of hearing nothing but negative things about that movie. I'm not saying I don't have gripes about it. I'm not saying that these are perfect versions of the film. But I have a lot to say on the positive and why it's not as bad as everybody says by a long shot. So you have hit on some of the future plans, some that haven't been pinned down yet. Uh, The bulk of 2014 is Frank Miller. There's a 50th anniversary episode in there, a couple of guest host episodes. So I won't be planning 2015 for a few months, but plan on seeing at least a few of those in there. But thank you for your email and thank you for being such a huge supporter of the show and putting it out there for people to see. Again, people, if you're not listening to the Fire and Water podcast, you are massively missing out as Shag is currently covering Classic Firestorm as I am reading them. And before we wrap up the show, we did get a new iTunes review. It was from January 3rd of 2014, the first iTunes review of 2014. It is from Eric Von Royer. It is another five-star review. It is entitled, J. David Weeder Does It Again. You cannot prove that. There is no evidence. Oh, okay, never mind. They're not talking about the one thing. But the review reads, yet again, Dave knocks it out with his fantastic podcast about Daredevil. I came at this podcast not really a hornhead, but by golly, Dave really knows how to sell a character. Now, if only I knew how to sell used cars, things might be in a better shape. But I appreciate that the review and conversions are happening. (laughs) Slowly. Slowly it has begun. Good. Good. Actually, if you're on iTunes, please do stop by and leave a review for the show. It can be easily found just by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Or if you just punch in Dave's Daredevil, thanks to the magic of autocomplete, it will come up. And the show is now on Stitcher Radio, which has an app that can be found on all major mobile platforms. It allows you to stream podcasts right on demand. If you don't mind leaving a review there, it does help others find the show on both platforms. And finally, if you want to email the show, the address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. It does take me sometimes a little bit to get to it just based on the timing of when I record the show, which seems to flux between a few days during the week. If you don't hear your email on one episode, you're very likely to hear it the very next week. But that brings us to a close this week. Next time, the mysterious lady gets closer to Matt... And by that I mean much, much closer, and we look into the underworld of crime, which is about to find a new boss. Get ready for the third issue of Man Without Fear in seven days. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one they call a man without fear. Never far away whenever danger's near. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. 
or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended, so please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.